Have your Bibles open to Luke 14. Thank you, Barry, for reading that for us. Before we begin, let me pray. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us, showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son, and we ask you now to teach us through your word so that we may follow Jesus this day and all the days until he returns. Amen. Well, welcome. As Dave said before, we're continuing our series uh, in the Gospel of Luke, which I think is fast becoming my favourite gospel, uh, if you can have a favourite gospel. We're in the middle of our series uh, on the parables that Jesus tells that appear only in Luke's gospel. And the parables that we have studied so far have um, have covered a remarkable variety of topics and themes that have subverted our way of thinking and indeed our way of life. And I've tried to capture something of this subversion in our series image behind me. See, Jesus turns our world upside down. That is the right way up. And reversal is actually a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. But it's probably the key theme of Luke and Acts. As the kingdom of God is inaugurated in the person and the work of Jesus, it brings with it this reversal of fortunes. And so in Luke 7, when John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus to ask him, look, Jesus, are you the one or should we expect someone else? Jesus replies there in Luke 7, 22. He says, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. There is this reversal on both the physical and the spiritual level. And it comes up again and again in Luke. Jesus, he lifts up the lowly. He draws near to sinners and he embraces the outsider. Uh, But today we encounter probably one of the clearest examples and expressions of this theme. Jesus ends today's parable with these famous words. No doubtedly you'll have heard them before. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Uh, But as with all our parables, it's important to understand uh, the context in which Jesus told this parable and says things like he does there in chapter 14, verse 11, because otherwise they can sound a little abstract. They can sound a little lofty, but Jesus tells this in a very real moment. Jesus is actually at the house of a prominent Pharisee on a Sabbath, which is an important detail. And we're told there in verse 1 that he was being carefully watched, i.e. he was being set up. Because verse 2, there in front of him was a man suffering from a normal swelling of his body. Just there in front of him. This abnormal swelling of the body, usually a symptom of a failing organ, a failing heart or a kidney or or a liver. And it sounds like, doesn't it, that this man had been planted there to test Jesus and his religious 
religiousness, I suppose, in keeping the Sabbath. But Jesus calls them out on it. He asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? You see, it was catch-22. If they answered yes, then they would be willing, expose themselves to being lawbreakers, breaking their own laws. If they answered no, that would expose their heartlessness. And so what do they do? They play it safe. They remain silent. And into this silence, Jesus takes hold of the man and healed him and sent him on his way. Just, just like that. Right there in front of them, Jesus heals this man. But, but Jesus isn't finished. He challenges them on how they keep the Sabbath. He says in verse 5, Look, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And the implication is, of course you would. Right? You wouldn't give it a second thought. It's, it's your child. It's, it's your very expensive and helpful animal. And so if they were willing to, to violate the Sabbath to save what was theirs, why would they object to Jesus' healing on the Sabbath? So Jesus calls them out on their hypocrisy, so much for their keeping of their laws. And he exposes their concern for themselves and their indifference toward others, especially this man that they just thrust in front of Jesus. It was an awkward um, pre-dinner drink, but it sets the scene, doesn't it? Because now, Jesus, who himself was being carefully watched, carefully watches as the guests pick places of honour at the table. And Jesus actually goes on to tell two parables in Luke 14. The Second parable um, is the parable of the great banquet, which appears also in Matthew. And that's, that's a really well-known parable. You will have heard of that before. The first parable, the parable of the invited guests, or whatever you want to call it, doesn't actually have a name, or not a well-known name. That's less well-known. This, this parable is less well-known, but it's just as powerful. It has to do with honour and shame. And honour and shame in that culture and context were matters of life and death. Now, we are not an honour and shame culture in the same way that that first century Palestine was. But it still resonates with us, perhaps not on a surface level, but deep down, we still crave public approval, don't we? We, we still crave public approval and we do our best to avoid public embarrassment. And so Jesus has something to say then to all of us about humility. And what he will say will sound illogical, but Jesus himself lived it out and he would have us follow him. You see, in those days, your position at a table or in a room was actually very significant. Uh, we are less formal and more casual about things nowadays, but we do have a similar custom to, to them, perhaps when it comes to things like wedding receptions. Uh, there are lots of things that you have to get organised um, for weddings, but perhaps the most daunting task is organising the seating arrangements at a wedding reception. I'm not sure whether you've been involved in that process before. Right? There are some tricky family dynamics to navigate. There are some tricky uh, expectations to consider. 
And so what we do is we, we put all everyone's names on, on these place cards and we begin to sort of mentally shuffle them around the room and around the table according to honour, really. And so there's the bridal table where the bride and groom sit. On either side of them is the wedding party. And then on the table closest to the bridal table is the parents and the, the grandparents and and then the next table perhaps might be the siblings and then the next table might be the friends and then the next table might be the cousins and sort of right at the back there, out of the way, are those family or friends that you sort of had to invite but whose names you're unsure of. Well, Jesus here has something to say to those who had just chosen their seats of honour. Verse 8, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, they didn't have place cards in those days, Do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. This would be like, imagine your old school friend whom you just bumped into the week before the wedding and invited himself, sort of, to your own wedding, sort of wanders in and finds a seat at the bridal table. Or or, or perhaps worse, taking the seat of the, the, the mother of the bride. But Jesus says, look, don't take the best seat because you've not seen the entire guest list. Someone more important than yourself may, no, undoubtedly will show up later. And then the host will have to ask you to give up your seat for them. You will be relegated. You will be humiliated. And by then, the only remaining seat will be the least important seat. And in a culture that was intensely interested in acquiring public honour and avoiding public shame, this would not have just been laughed off. This was cringeworthy stuff. Humility in this case is about recognising who you are in relation to others and ultimately in relation to God. There's a story, a famous story about this. Um... There were three young men who in the 1930s in Detroit, in America, uh, hopped on a bus and they spotted someone sitting at the back of the bus and they tried to uh, pick a fight with him. You you can imagine this scene, right? Three rowdy uh, young guys um, tried to pick a fight with this lone man on this bus and they insulted him and they provoked him to sort of provoke some sort of reaction, but, but nothing And eventually, the stranger stood up. He was much bigger than what they had estimated as when he was sitting down. Much bigger. And he reached into his pocket and handed them his business card and hopped off the bus and went on his way. And as the bus sort of drove on, the young men gathered around the business card to read Joe Lewis, Boxer. They just tried to pick a fight with a man who would be heavyweight champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. Now, Joe Lewis could have put them in their place. He could have done it pretty easily, but he didn't. And it would have been very painful and shameful if he had. No, no, Jesus says, assume that you were lowly and the only way is up. Verses 10 to 11. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, 
move up to a better place. Then you'll be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so the principle is simple enough, right? If you try to gain honour for yourself, you will be humbled and humiliated. But if you show humility, then you will receive great honour, right? Talk, talk about a reversal of fortunes. And in an honour-shame culture, this was a radical idea. That self-promotion was actually self-demotion. But Jesus is not simply here stating a sort of general life hack. How do you become first? Well, sit at the end of the line. That way you'll get the lollipop first. He's not just stating a general life hack. Jesus saw in their choosing where to sit this deep spiritual sense of entitlement and desire for recognition and honour. And this is a fatal flaw when it comes to thinking about the kingdom of God. Because God opposes the proud, but favours the humble. And I sometimes think that the longer that you've been a Christian, or the longer that you've been in church, perhaps even the more that you've done ministry-wise, that we're more prone to this sense of entitlement or desire for recognition and honour. So we are not immune to this sort of self-seeking. And Jesus' own disciples were not immune to this sort of self-seeking. Twice in the Gospel of Luke, we find the disciples arguing about who is the greatest. Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 22. Jesus reminds us that we should seek to humble ourselves in our relationships with one another. Jesus doesn't stop there either because he says that there is a way to practice this here and now. It's to honour those who will not be able to honour you in return. It is to serve those who will not be able to serve you in return. It is to help those who cannot help themselves who may not be able to help you in return. And in an honour-shame culture where the expectation was, look, I honour you, you honour me. This was radical. Jesus turns to the host of the party. You can imagine, you can imagine people feeling reasonably awkward at this point. Jesus now turns to the host of the party. When you're given a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbours. Why, if you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you will be blessed. So although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. 
Good news, everyone. Jesus is not saying that we can't have any more family dinners. Okay? But he would have us live out the drama of redemption, the reality of what God has done for us. Embrace the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. In their world, the weak, the helpless, the oppressed, the outsider. And recognise yourself in them. Because if you don't recognise yourself in them and instead assume the place of honour, you will be forced to recognise this in yourself come the final judgment. At which point you may miss out on the banquet altogether. See, this host and his guests saw in this man that they had planted there at this dinner party, this man that they had thrust in front of Jesus, they saw in this man his immense need, but they failed to see in themselves their immense need before God. And actually, in the second parable of Luke 14, which I would encourage you to read later, it is the poor, it is the crippled, it is the blind, and it is the lame who end up accepting the invitation to the heavenly banquet. And they are able to accept the invitation because they recognise their poverty and their need before God, and they do accept the invitation because they see in him all that they could ever need or want. So a few weeks ago, you may remember, in the parable of the rich fool or the rich farmer, we were challenged to think about what it means to be rich toward God. Do you remember that? Well, this week we're challenged to think about what it means to be poor before God. I wonder whether you'd, uh, if you have your Bibles there, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Because this is uh, a fantastic passage that uh, uh, helps us, puts us in our place, can I say. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Even if you have to look it up on your phones, it's worth looking up. You may recognise some of this. This may be new to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. It's Paul writing to those in Corinth. One Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-six. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Friends, we have to recognise at this point that we too are caught up in this theme of reversal. And as we humble ourselves as we ought before God and value others above ourselves, the beautiful thing about this parable is that he finishes by assuring us that we're actually not seeking momentary honour, but we're we can expect eternal glory. And how can we be sure? Because we will be following Jesus. Who, though he was God, did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest, to the place of highest honour and gave him the name above all other names. See, it's one thing for Jesus to say what he says in verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. But, but he actually did it. You see, opponents of Christianity have long thought that the crucifixion was evidence that Jesus was a nobody and that he amounted to nothing. Worse than nothing. He, he died at the most shameful death. Death on a cross. Actually, 150 years ago, archaeologists discovered a piece of graffiti in Rome on the wall of a guardhouse. I've got a picture of it here. And they date this back to the second or the third century. Right? Soon after, in historical terms, soon after Jesus lived and died, when large numbers of Christians were still being imprisoned and executed. And the picture shows, as you can tell, this crucified man with the head of a donkey indicating stupidity. And next to the cross stands a man with an arm raised in adoration toward the figure on the cross and scribbled below in very poor handwriting and very poor Greek. Someone had written this, Alexemenos worships his God. And they think actually that it was a work of Roman guards insulting a Christian prisoner, perhaps as they were preparing him to be executed. And yet, friends, the cross is the high point of this reversal theme that runs throughout the entire Bible and is so clear in the Gospel of Luke. It may look like Jesus had lost. As Christians, it may feel sometimes like we have lost. 
but he was found, and in him we will be found to have won. See, on the cross, honour and shame are turned on their heads. Because the highly honoured Jesus lowered himself to a shameful cross, and yet in doing so, he was highly exalted. So friends, we, we can humble ourselves among each other, to the world even. But ultimately, we can humble ourselves in front of God. We don't have to seek after honour and recognition in this world because we will receive it in the next. We can follow Jesus because he has gone lower than any of us could ever go and he is now higher than any of us could ever imagine going. And as we come humbly to Jesus in repentance and faith, Jesus says, friend, move up higher. One of my favourite authors, a little old now, well, he's dead, but his work is a little old now. Is A.W. Tozer. If you've not read some of his stuff, I'd encourage you to do so. And he once wrote this. He wrote in a time, by the way, that he only referred in the masculine. So this applies to women too. The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. But he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is weak and helpless, as God has declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is, in the sight of God, more important than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. Friends, may we find ourselves in God. We invite Chris 